I'm Zoe Darwin. I'm a reader at the University of Huddersfield, so that means I have a research-focused role and my background's in reproductive psychology. So I'm particularly passionate around um, perinatal mental health and well-being in anyone who is becoming a parent or pursuing parenthood. And my pronouns are she, her. And I've uh, been involved with research in this area for about 15 years now both with cisgender mums, cisgender dads, and more recently working in LGBT research. So I'm Jacob, my pronouns are he and they, and I am the founder and managing director of Transparent Change CIC, which is a not-for-profit that I set up in my postnatal period. <laughs> um, and I did that because I, uh, I access perinatal services as a trans person, as somebody who'd already gone through some amount of medical transition. My experiences with that were really impactful and I really found that there were so many people who were really well-meaning but didn't have the knowledge, even a trans 101 foundationally, to know how to then support me. So then going through perinatal, the perinatal experience and going through pregnancy and birth and afterwards, I, I, I found that there were things that I had no idea were gonna happen let alone the professionals supporting me. And so I set up this not-for-profit so that I can educate not only the professionals who support trans people, but also to increase awareness and visibility for other trans people uh, when they're considering family making. Um, I do touch on wider LGBT issues by the very nature that trans people are part of that wider community, but there's a real niche there. 1% of all births in the UK are to trans or non-binary people. That was from the CQC data that came out in 2022. And so this isn't a very, this isn't a smaller minority as people may think when they're looking at these things. I'm a parent of two and yeah, also kind of working on this advocacy and education at the same time. What is perinatal mental health? So do you want to give us the kind of definition of that? So perinatal mental health is usually used to refer to the time spanning from conception to one year after a baby's birth. And it's a real umbrella term. So it can include mental health difficulties um, that might be um, diagnosable conditions. And those might be things that are new onset or they might be difficulties that are exacerbated in the perinatal period. It can also include psychological distress. So symptoms that might not meet the the threshold for diagnosis or might not be picked up in that way, but certainly can still have a significant impact on people's day-to-day lives. I'm interested starting off thinking about sort of public perceptions of what this thing is, because I guess it includes the child and anybody involved directly in the birth of that child. And that's all sorts of different people. I did a search on um, an image library before we started for perinatal mental health, which is all quite a good way of kind of identifying stigma. If you search for, you know, schizophrenia, you get people holding axes with blood pouring down in the background. It's like ridiculous, you know, stigmatizing images. And perinatal mental health basically is pictures of attractive women and babies. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you, you might get a family, uh, family, which is an attractive man or an attractive woman and an attractive baby. <laughs> That's the kind of, you know, images we get. And if you go into a bookshop, you'll get the same sort of stuff. If you look in a newspaper, you'll get the same sort of stuff. So, Jacob, do you want to kind of come in on this, the fact that there seems to be a mismatch between what the people who are actually involved in real life <laughs> in the birth of a child and this kind of view of society of this? 
I think one of the huge um, misconceptions that people have is that perinatal mental health is only about after the birth of the child as well. So even if you're just looking at the person who's given birth, which absolutely it isn't just the person who gives birth who's impacted by perinatal mental health. Um, but if you're only looking after the birth of the child, then you have people, anyone who's experiencing pregnancy, not realising just how at risk they are potentially for mental health issues. Um, and I think that's exacerbated when someone's LGBT and especially when someone is trans, because you're navigating not only the fact that people may not realise just how impactful pregnancy is on the body. You know, I think all too often, especially because it's something that primarily women and certainly everyone who's, you know, it's assigned female at birth people experience, cis men do not experience pregnancy. Uh, it's minimised as an experience, as though it's not that much to go through. Um, oh, you've got morning sickness. Oh, it's just morning sickness. Oh, your, your hips, oh, it's just your hips hurting, you know. And actually, it is a hugely impactful thing for your body and mind to go through with these big hormonal changes. Um, I, I experienced a change to my mental health during my pregnancies, and it's only because I had previous kind of awareness and <clears throat> a very close friend of mine is a midwife that I was able to kind of recognize that quite early on. And not everybody has those resources. Um, and of course, as I say, it isn't just the person who's going through the pregnancy who's becoming a parent or impacted by the birth of that child. Um, you have a whole family around who are experiencing this huge life change that's about to happen. And while they may not be having the same level of physiological changes due directly to pregnancy, there's still huge changes happening in relationship dynamics, um, internally in your own experience, as well as a sense of identity. Uh, and then obviously, yes, after a baby is born, there is this upheaval that isn't just for the person who's given birth, but everybody involved suddenly, firstly, has a lot less sleep. <laughs> and I had to remind myself a lot when I was giving, uh, when I had a newborn, that sleep deprivation is a form of torture and and is a way that, you know, it, it, it hurts in a way that I couldn't ever really understand until I had to go through it. Um, so, yeah, I think when we limit perinatal mental health only to women after giving birth, um, and specifically women who've given birth, um, you you really miss out on this much broader impact uh, that the pregnancy has uh, on everybody. There are still many inequalities around identification and accessing treatment for birthing mums in heterosexual relationships or who are lone parents and and so on so there's you know there are absolutely still um huge amounts of work needed there research and also practice changes and none of this detracts from that but yes the the remit of services is very much focused on birthing women and um is focused on birthing people but realistically, when we look at the language used in policy and in clinical guidance, there's a, a kind of assumption there that that's um, that that's women. And usually when other parents are mentioned, that is in the context of usually being a partner of a birthing mum who has an identified 
perinatal mental health need. So there have been some quite big changes that are happening in specialist provision of perinatal mental health services, um, less so in the more universal provision around maternity and health visiting. And so in the specialist perinatal mental health services, there's this encouragement to now, you know, think family and to be really actively thinking about um, you know, any parent who might be involved. But that has bit that is focused where there's an identified need because we know the the risks are so much greater in a family where one parent has um a perinatal mental illness that the other um parent is at that increased um vulnerability. And you know, completely uh, echo with what Jacob was saying about there's been traditionally this focus on you know postnatals of people as well as the images that you were talking about Andrew you know we tend to people will have heard of the terms postnatal depression and maybe postpartum or purple psychosis because um, although kind of thankfully fairly uncommon they're often um, quite in the public eye with um, how serious some of um, some of the risks can be and that that's really a you know psychiatric emergency whereas is this it's really about this period of transition and as Jacob says that's for for anyone you know anyone is going through that transition and of course that's not only when people first become parents but also subsequent parents you know relationships change again um, housing changes again roles change again you know going from a, a first child to you know a, a second child those dynamics for the parents if even if they're even if they're in that same relationship same intimate relationship how they are as a family can change again um and of course other other things that services aren't very good at um, recognizing are that families also change between pregnancies so when when people are asked questions often the questioning approaches it as though that's going to be the same um, same couple involved and so I think a lot of the conversations actually that we're having around improving for thinking more um, inclusively around LGBT people's needs also help make fathers who are cisgender and in heterosexual relationships also help can help fathers feel more visible so you know if we think about kind of um, the history taking that happens you know, a father who's experienced a stillbirth with a previous partner, that may not at all come into the conversation in a later period of maternity care, for example. And yet as a family and some of the expectations and experiences, that will be so relevant. So I think actually, you know, this wider recognising that um, that people might not only be a birthing parent or, or a non-birthing parent you know people might have held more than one role and that people's you know experiences with pregnancy and parenthood and pursuit of parenthood might not only be in that one relationship you know I just want to add to that there's a real thing around visibility and invisibility um I talk about it a lot around my transness as a trans man who's gone through medical transition, I was very visibly trans while I was accessing perinatal services. I couldn't hide my transness. Whereas a trans person who'd never accessed medical transition was accessing perinatal services, maybe very invisible in their gender. We also have this issue of 
um, especially around co-parents um, who aren't the, the pregnant person themselves, but are the other uh, the other parent may often be very invisible, and especially if they're LGBT. But again, it's such a great example about you know you could have a cis straight dad who has experienced loss, or has experienced parenting, or has experienced going through pregnant supporting someone through pregnancy. You know, has this history that would be invisible when we just go with this basic model of man woman mummy daddy only focusing on the person who's pregnant and ignoring any other sort of history around that I think when we actually allow a level of nuance which has to come when you're looking at LGBT families um, you immediately allow more space for atypical cis and straight families to have more space to share their stories and have that built into the process. I'm interested in what needs to change very broadly, first of all, in terms of kind of the law, I suppose. You know, I'm, I'm remembering just a, a, quite recently, a few years ago, a lesbian friend of mine who was denied IVF treatment. And I think it was denied on the basis that the people were just homophobic uh, who ran this centre. But she was given this sort of, you know, I'm not sure we can do it for people like you sort of reason. And what I wonder, just big picture here, are there any kind of legal barriers to everyone getting the kind of perinatal support that they need? Or have we passed that point now? So the guidance has changed, I believe, in the, the women's health strategy fairly recently about the access around assisted reproduction. However, there's a difference between what it might officially say and then, of course, both the funding decisions that happen, but also you know, ultimately there there can be experiences of discrimination and, and so on that might go on even if even if there's one official line on something. So I think assisted conception is is certainly an area where there are, you know, continued inequalities through to as well, you know, at birth registration, people are often not suitably knowledgeable who you know, might be, you know, in, in those roles, there maybe are some training needs there because certainly with some recent um, data collection that we've had where um, Mary Greenfield's done the um, interviews, birth reg registration came up repeatedly there about um, people kind of not knowing. With the example, Andre said, of kind of, you know, oh, we don't know what we can do for people like you. Sometimes that might be that, the, you know, that the person there genuinely doesn't know, but it's is sort of then you know, working that through with the people, which it's such an important time, that birth registration. And often, you know, a lot goes on before getting to that point. And the thought that, you know, at that moment, which is social and legal recognition of your relationship with that baby, it's not good enough that people don't know and that information that's given is inconsistent. So there are, there are different ways of course of um of becoming pregnant and different people in the lgbt community are going to face different challenges around legal and social recognition of their relationship to their children and of course some people are going to um conceive themselves as an lgbt couple and there's such a range um of ways of you know routes to parenthood but absolutely there there are gaps and also if we think about you know in perinatal mental health provision which is focused on on birthing people but there you know there are other possible gaps so people sometimes thinking uh you know 
this is a service for mothers and babies if if there's a trans birthing parent does that have an implication for accessibility or the new maternal mental health services that have come in that are intended to bridge the gap between perinatal mental health services and others so particularly focused on trauma and loss for example those services have have different criteria in different areas but for some it will be that you can also access the service if you've got a severe fear of birth without currently being pregnant or having been pregnant so potentially someone who has the ability physically to be pregnant could access that and it could be subsequent to a traumatic birth where their partner's been pregnant Um, or it could be someone who might not be on any services radar as someone who potentially is you know pursuing pregnancy and then there could also be gaps there between how kind of non-birthing parents are treated kind of you know dependent on gender so yeah there are definitely areas that you know where change is needed. I think one of the fundamental changes if we're looking big picture and and birth registration made me think of this um but it's also something again I talk about a lot is language and accessibility around language um if you like like Zoe was saying if you say something is a service for women uh, and I need to access it because it's a mental health service for women. I'm I'm then making the decision: Do I misgender myself, potentially put myself at risk because this service is obviously not designed for me, or do I go without the necessary and timely interventions that could help me at a vulnerable time in my life? Um, also, considering about language, if we're going back up to a law level and, and birth registration. Um, A trans man giving birth, even if he has a gender recognition certificate, which means that his birth certificate has been changed to be male, uh, has to, if he's given birth, has to register his baby and he has to register as the mother. Now, this is obviously flawed and it made, you know, um, I found it quite traumatic to register both of my births. In fact, I didn't go to my second one. Because at my first one, not only did we have this law issue of it being already a very difficult thing for me to do, having to write down, and it also asks you to put all your previous names. Do I choose to dead name myself on a legal document that people may see? Um, But also the registrar asked me about my genitals um, and asked me about, you know, what surgeries I had or hadn't had or and things. It's like, what are you... (laughs) This isn't isn't the time and you're not the person. You don't get, you know, this is completely inappropriate. Um, And I found that really, really difficult um, to access. And so, again, it's that combination of, of, yes, we need some structural law changes. But I think, again, this is why I do the work I do. Fundamentally, we need education. We need the people on the ground working even within the slightly rubbish systems we've got to make things uh, as accessible as possible, just through um, a level of kind of quite basic understanding at times, <laughs> like don't ask people about their genitals, <laughs> which, should, which should be be so obvious. It's not about changing the language for everybody. It's not about changing, using long confounded words. It is just about recognizing that 1% of people out there who are giving birth may use different language than the mainstream, may have different identities than the mainstream. Even if you don't see them visibly as trans, because maybe they've not accessed medical transition, maybe they never want to, that still doesn't stop them from having that identity and maybe having language that's right for them. It's one of the reasons why trans inclusion and LGBT inclusion goes so hand in hand with trauma-informed care. 
which obviously is so closely linked to mental health support. Because when you can provide individualized, person-centered care, is that's when you are automatically trans inclusive, you are automatically LGBT inclusive, and you're of course also trauma informed. So I'm thinking about, you know, kind of mums groups, some friends of mine, so gay dads with two young kids who just felt completely excluded from all sort of, you know, early years stuff, because all the groups are, even the, the way they're presented, the names you get on the kind of play cafes is very, very focused on very sort of normal role models. How do we challenge that? So it's something that I experienced as well, obviously. Um, so my partner is a is a cis man. And so we are a two dad family. And um, and especially because I'm the one that gave birth and I wanted to access, for example, postnatal yoga. And, and it was really scary to access that space. Because again, as somebody who's very visibly trans entering this space, this is a space, there's 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 parent groups which are usually mums, and then there's parent spaces which are for mums. And that was one of the ones that's kind of for mums because it's the person who's given birth. Uh, but it's still also my space because I've given birth. Um, how do we challenge it? I mean, it's so broad and it's so vast. I think it's it always comes down to uh, a level of education and awareness. Um, you know, you can't get to every single tiny little niche group, uh, which is run by, you know, the church on the corner or uh, the preschool or, or, or the, the, the home start centre. Um, there's no one legislative space where, you know, and I wouldn't want it to be that people are forced to use certain language. Um, all we can do is kind of hope that the more people see LGBT families accessing these spaces, they have an awareness of the impact that that has. Um, and unfortunately, what that often means is it comes down to LGBT people ourselves to go and be that first person and to have those conversations and to make people aware. Uh, and there's, a, there's an emotional responsibility and a, and a psychological responsibility that comes with that. Um, we're in, a, uh, in a, a generation where there's suddenly a lot more of us who know of our reproductive choices and are, and are making the decisions to have children in queer couples or, or singly. And that means that we are then um, having to be the person who, you know, I often say, I may be your first trans person, but you're not my first inquisitive person. <laughs> you know, I've been a thousand people's first trans person. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, th I think it is just awareness and uh, keeping on having those conversations, I guess. But you've hit the nail on the head when you say it's not your job. You know, in the same way, Zoe, it's not black and brown people's job to educate white people about how to be anti-racist. It's not Jacob's job to educate everybody else about how to be more inclusive in these settings. So who's, I mean, it's a shared responsibility, but what would you like academics, practitioners, clinicians, researchers to do to help move forward in this area? Yeah. So and I think as well as the, you know, social and emotional responsibility, there's the cost of doing that. And um, yes. And often the time when you most need something is the time when you might least feel able to challenge something. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, reflexive practice, being more self-aware speaks not only to this but to everything so in the same way that Jake was saying you know actually if you're thinking in a trauma-informed way or if you're you know really working on reflexive practice actually everyone everyone benefits and 
you know, I think it's, you know, it's not about neutralizing language. It's not that everything becomes parents. It's about, you know, being additive there about, you know, who's, who is welcome in this space and, and that being, and that being clear. I think there are real challenges that in, you know, for example, in cities, there might be enough people that then you end up having a group that really feels like someone's space and that people who are in more isolated areas where there are fewer LGBT people are also less likely to, you know, to have that. And I think um, although online is not the solution, I think it's helpful in that people can, you know, can come together in a different way. And of course, there are things like, you know, digital digital literacy and, and other barriers and so on. But I think it's important that, you know, as practitioners, people are aware of where could you signpost to? You know, you might not have something locally, but might there be a few places that you, you know, that you could signpost to? Um, and, you know, again, linking back with um, some of the, you know, dad's work in terms of, you know, cis dads in heterosexual relationships, you know, again, this dates back further of people feeling excluded from spaces that they don't know whether parent includes them or not. I think there's a long, you know, there's a long way to go, but I think that is part of it is thinking, uh, you know, who whose space is this? How visible is it? Um, and also, might there ever be tricky conversations needed that does, you know, how do the people, everyone using that space feel about that? Um, because as much as, you know, I'm pleased to hear, Jacob, with the training that you've been doing, people haven't been transphobic. You know, you're not you're there. You're not a faceless person out into social media. But, you know, the reality is that there is a lot of transphobia out there, um, for example. So we, you know, also need to be realistic about that. Or, you know, if things are online, is there a moderator? And make because you know emotional safety is so important and when we think about perinatal mental health difficulties um what I guess we've not talked about but has been implied with actually a lot of what we've been talking about is the impact that interactions with services can have on people's mental health and so uh you know and so not that double whammy of in increasing someone's vulnerability and also perhaps creating barriers to accessing care. So at the conference, we're really challenging the idea of maternal mental health and paternal mental health and how fit for purpose it is. So, you know, who do we who do we silence? Who do we miss when we take that approach? How does it limit our understanding, whether that's as researchers, whether that's as practitioners who are there to meet people's needs? People really want to know more and want to do better. And one of the things that I really aim to provide um, is a space where people can uh, hear a very real and honest experience, but also have an opportunity to ask questions in a completely non-judgmental space. And whether that's during the conference itself, because uh, there is space for um, um, Q&A, I think, as well there, um, or even just in, in space to kind of meet and talk with people. It's really important to me that people who want to, uh, you know, there's so many people who want to get it right, but are afraid to get it wrong. And so what I try and do is help you how to get it right, and also 
help you with what to do if you do get it wrong, because it happens to all of us sometimes. Thank you.